The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we get started this morning, let's uh, make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that uh, we're filled with the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, abiding in Christ, ready to focus on the study of His Word. Let's pray. Father, the psalmist wrote that your word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. It is in thy light that we see light. And Father, it is in the light of your word that we're able to understand who we are. We see ourselves as fallen creatures created in your image and glory for a purpose, yet you have redeemed us. You have saved us with a sufficient salvation remarkable in its breadth and depth through the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. You have bequeathed to us a remarkable spiritual life that is revealed to us in the pages of your word, and it is directed toward an ultimate goal of training and preparation for our future destiny to rule and reign with our Lord during the millennial kingdom. For though we were created a little lower than the angels, our destiny is to rule over the angels. Now, fathers, we study your word today. May we be mindful of its importance to us as it builds in our soul a framework of life and thought that we may live within the structure of your creation according to what you have designed and what you have revealed, that you might be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Now, as you read this in your translation, be it King James, New King James, New American Standard, or whatever, we read, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Now, we have just spent about six weeks going through the doctrine of the pre-tribulation rapture, but we need to wrap up a few things before we press on to the next verse. Now, I just want to review a few things and set the context as we go forward. If we look at this, and we go back a few weeks to when I did some initial exegesis between verse 9 and verse 10, I pointed out that according to the way the Greek reads, the... Uh, clause at the beginning of verse 10, as you have it in your English, which reads, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, doesn't fall at the beginning of a sentence. It comes at the end of the previous sentence. It's the last clause, and this fits standard usage of this type of syntactical construction in the Greek. And part of the tendencies of the King James translators was to try to make each verse read as an independent sentence. 
but it gives a false understanding of the verse by putting it with verse 10 because it makes it look as if the keeping from the hour of testing is related to keeping the word of my perseverance. But in fact, what the writer is saying, what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying to the church at Philadelphia is that he will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you because you have kept the word of my perseverance. And then in addition to that, there is another promise given to the church at Philadelphia. And even though the Philadelphian church of the believers at that time would not live to the time of the tribulation, uh, the same can be said about other congregations in the first century, such as the congregation in Thessalonica, where the Apostle Paul told them that they were not destined for wrath. And so there are numerous passages in the New Testament that speak to the first century church, uh, promising them deliverance from the wrath to come, which is a term for the tribulation. Now, the reason that had significance and relevance and importance to that first generation of believers is because they knew Jesus was coming back, but they didn't know when. That's the doctrine which we refer to as the imminency of Christ's return. It can come at any moment. Nothing has to happen prophetically in relationship to the rapture of the church. So we must be prepared, and that's the sense of immediacy that we get over and over again in passages in the New Testament related to the coming of Jesus Christ. And that is the motivation for believers to press on to spiritual maturity. Not long ago I was asked the question that if we're saved by grace and any sin that we commit after salvation doesn't really impact our, our salvation, we can't lose that salvation, what then is to be our motivation to live for the Lord? And the motivation to live for the Lord is provided in this passage and it's directed to God's future plan for us to understand that we are in training now in this era, in this church age during our life here, for that future destiny of ruling and reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ. That we want to appear before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ and hear those words, uh, good and well done, good and faithful servant. We do not want to be among those believers who appear at the judgment seat of Christ and lose rewards. So that's the background for this. So there is a promise that is added here by the Lord that I will keep you from the hour of testing. And we looked at that in terms of the uh, verbiage there in the Greek that keeping you from the hour of testing didn't mean that they were in it and somehow protected within it by uh, God's uh, sovereign protection. And came to my attention this uh, this last week that a number of you have heard this verse taught that keeping you from the hour of testing was the protection of the Lord known as the wall of fire around the believer during times of historical disaster. It amazed me that that had been taught because this is one of four or five verses that um, dispensationalists consider to be the most significant verses for support of a pre-tribulation rapture. As a matter of fact, it, the, the verbiage that is used in this text uh, cannot at all support the type of testing that is going on uh, during the church age. This refers to a unique period upon uh, certain individuals. And so I want to address that because as we go back and look at some of those details to ex- understand why this is talking about a pre-trib rapture, it makes the next sentence or two, the next verse or two have more significance for us. Because when we come to verse 11, what we read, Behold, I, actually behold is not in the original text, I come quickly, or I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take away your crown. See, immediately in the next verse, there's this reminder that that there is an imminency to Christ's coming. And we'll see that in the technical terminology that is there that is translated quickly, just as a preview of coming attractions. Coming quickly does not mean soon. 
See, there's a lot of debate on this factor today, and if you are cognizant of what is going on in the world of uh, theology and alternate positions, what you discover is that, that among those who take a preterist position now, I know as soon as I start using words like preterist, historicist, and futurist, people go, oh, wait a minute, that was several weeks ago. Preterist is from that Latin word meaning past, and it is the position on prophecy that... 90% of the prophecy in the New Testament, Matthew 24, Revelation chapter 4 through 19, has already taken place, and that this was just figurative language for the judgment on Israel during the uh, first Jewish revolt in 66 to 70 A.D. But that's the preterist position. But among futurists, which we are, we believe that these events are yet to come to pass. We don't know when they'll come to pass. This word that's translated quickly means not as it's translated in the uh, New King James is not a word for proximity in time but is used consistently throughout the book of Revelation as we'll see to indicate the rapidity of the event in other words when Jesus came at the first advent the Messiah came and was announced by the angels and was recognized by the magi and was even recognized by uh, uh, a prophet in the uh, temple when Mary and Joseph brought him to be, be circumcised and he lived on the earth and he was manifest in his baptism by John the Baptist and there was three years or three and a half years or so of his public ministry before he went to the cross. In other words, it is an event that took a lot of time, so if you knew the Messiah was there, you had time to recover and address any failures in your life. In contrast to that coming, the second coming is going to be rapid and quick, and you're not going to have time to straighten up, to change things, and to get uh, things in order in your spiritual life, because you're not going to know it com it's going to come until it happens in the twinkling of an eye. It's going to be very rapid, and all of a sudden we will be in the presence of the Lord. And so that is the implication of this word, because uh, the Lord wants to get our attention focused on future uh, evaluation and future accountability at the judgment seat of Christ, and we need to live each day as if it's our last, each hour as if the Lord might appear before that hour is over with. So all of this terminology is rich with eschatological meaning. It is just jam-packed with significance, and you can't take these words and apply them to a historical situation like either the preterists do or the historicists do. So let's take a look at some of the details of this text, because as I was working through this yesterday, I had one of those really fun times that I get to have every now and then, and I'm working through this, and I'm cranking through it and coming up with some ideas, and I called up my good friend Tommy Ice, and Tommy and I get together on the phone. We'll go for an hour and a half, and we just play off of each other. You know, it's just that's one of the benefits of going to a seminary and not taking courses online is because you can develop these kinds of friendships with men that uh, will last a lifetime. And you, we, we play off of each other, and we were developing a lot of things, and each of us was adding, contributing different verses and putting together a scenario, which uh, I'll be going over this morning. Revelation 3.10, let's just focus on that verse. We have a statement, I also, or in addition to what I have already said, the Lord says, I will keep you from the hour of trial. Now, that word trial, as I've indicated in brackets, should be understood as testing. We'll look at the Greek on it in just a minute. That this hour of testing will come upon the whole world. And that word there is oikonom... Uh, in my English, I put in the wrong word. It's oikomene. Uh, oikomene, to test those who dwell on the earth. And that second word for testing shifts from the noun to the verb for pyrazo. It's the same word that's used in terms of the hour of trial. To test those who dwell upon the earth. And then we have the word uh, hoi uh, katoi kuntes, actually. And I don't know why it ends up looking like with a D there, because I know I specifically caught that misspelling and changed it. I've had nothing but trouble with this computer this morning. Okay, the hour of trial. 
The word hour is the Greek word hora, which is actually where we get our English word hour. You can see the uh, relationship between the two. It means a literal hour or a period of time, a season, a definite space of division of time, uh, which recurs at fixed intervals, and it is used figuratively for a general period of time. So we read here, I also will keep you from that time period. Uh, of testing is what it's talking about. It's not talking about a 60-minute uh, hour. Uh, it's a time of trial. This is the noun perasmos uh, in the Greek. It is a time of testing. Now, this is a particularly important word, and I'm going to tie some of these things together because once you start seeing the connection of certain key vocabulary, this is what, why it's so important to be able to look at the original languages. Once you start looking at certain key words that show up in some of these passages, you can then start connecting the dots. You see, a vital principle in, in interpretation of scriptures to recognize what is known as progressive revelation. That is that God did not reveal everything at one particular moment or time in history, but things were revealed incrementally over time so that uh, Adam uh, did not know as much as Enoch. Enoch did not know as much as Noah. Noah did not know as much as Abraham. Abraham did not know as much as David. David did not know as much as Daniel. Daniel did not know as much as Paul. So you have this... uh, development of revelation down through the ages. So it's good then, once we have a completed scripture, is to go back and connect some of the dots. And all, and it helps us to develop a, an entire picture of just what God is doing in our life, in our spiritual life, and how we fit into the, the, the plan that God has for the ages going on in to the kingdom, and a crucial part of this is this whole concept of testing. So there is this future time, this time that we have seen is a term for the tribulation period. It's it's a time that G, that our Lord mentioned in Matthew 24 as being uh, a time of that is unique in all the world, a time of testing, a time of of uh, judgment unlike any time in all of history in the Old Testament. Uh, Gabriel revealed this to Daniel, that there would be this future time that would be unlike any other time in history. So you can't go back and plug this into events of 70 uh, A.D. or plug them into events of the later Jewish revolts. It, it is a unique time in all of history, and it's called here a time of testing. This is the same word that we find in James 1.12. Blessed is the man who endures testing. Endures testing, not temptation. And here we have the verb form of parasmas. This is the verb parazo. And parazo means that something is for the purpose of proving or demonstrating something. It is to endeavor to discover the nature or character of something by testing, to endeavor to discover the nature or character of something by testing, that is to try to make a trial of something or to put it to the test. So blessed is the man who endures testing, and then that connects testing to another key word, which is endurance. And this is the Greek word hupomene, which means to remain under. And that, of course, ties back to James 1, 2. A good corollary between this study this morning is what we've covered the last two weeks in Hebrews and the importance of testing and the role testing plays in the uh, life of the believer. What we learn about testing as we look at this is that when God is the agent of the testing, the testing is designed to prove the quality of something. God is not testing us to prove what failures we are, but he is testing us in order to give us that opportunity to show what we've learned and to apply the doctrine that has come into our into our life. We see this throughout the scriptures. For example, in the Old Testament, one of the first major uses of this concept is in Genesis 22.1, when God tested Abraham in relationship to Isaac. And God appeared to Abraham and told him to take his son, his only son Isaac, and to take him to uh, Mount Moriah. And there Abraham was to sacrifice Isaac to God. Now this was a test to see if Abraham had learned the doctrine that God had been trying to teach him 
for well over uh, 50 years at this particular point, 40 to 50 years, that God had promised him a seed and that through that promised seed God would, would give him a multitude of descendants and it would be through those descendants that the entire world would be blessed. And so Isaac was the promised seed and as we saw in our study of Genesis chapter 22, when Abraham was on the verge of, of killing Isaac when he had uh, constructed the altar and laid Isaac upon the altar and was about to cut his throat. God stayed his hand because, as we're told in Hebrews chapter 11, Abraham had finally learned what God was trying to teach him, that God's promise could not be broken, that God was going to bless the world through Isaac's seed. So even if he did kill Isaac... Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham understood that God would bring Isaac back from the dead because God had to, by virtue of his integrity and character, fulfill his promise to Abraham to provide him a multitude of descendants through Isaac. So he was ready, willing to pass the test. He had confidence in God. And so part of testing is to show or give evidence of what has transpired in our soul that to show and demonstrate our dependence upon God, which immediately, as soon as we think about this, it ought to take our thinking directly back to the angelic conflict. The angelic conflict refers to that battle, that rebellion of Satan that began in eternity past, when the most beautiful and awesome of all of God's creatures, the most intelligent, the most talented, the most gifted of all of God's creatures, Lucifer, decided that he wanted to be like God. He wanted to have the approbation and the power that the, that only the Creator has. And Isaiah 14 records the five I wills of Satan, concluding with the fact that I will be like the Most High. He wanted to be exactly like God. He wanted to rule and reign the creation exactly like God. And he enticed, we're told, a third of the angels to follow after him. These are the creatures we now refer to as fallen angels or demons. And these followed Satan in his rebellion. And then God created man uh, in order to demonstrate certain truths before the angels and all creatures that could not be learned any other way other than through a live experiment. See, an experiment is not something you do in the laboratory to see what will happen. If you look the definition up, an experiment is something you do to demonstrate known truths. And so God is demonstrating certain known truths in creatures. And the, known, the truth that he is demonstrating is that the creature cannot in any way whatsoever live independently from the creator. No matter what the act is, no matter how simple or innocuous the act might be, when that act is operating independently of the Creator, it rips the fabric of the universe. That's why the initial sin is not a sin that makes anybody's hit list of the ten worst sins or five worst sins or even three worst sins. I mean, I could probably ask most of you to list out all the worst sins you could think of, and eating a piece of fruit would not make the top list. But that's what happened in the garden, because what God was demonstrating was just this simple, innocuous apparently innocent act, something that nobody associates with immorality or any of the horrible things that happen. It's not violent. It's not self-destructive. It's none of these things. It's not abusive. It doesn't fit any categories of uh, politically incorrect sins. It doesn't fit any categories of socially incorrect sins. It's just a simple act of eating a piece of fruit. But it was done in independence of God, in violation of his authority. And the result was that that simple act of Adam taking a bite out of that piece of fruit ripped the fabric of the entire universe. The galaxies changed. The laws of physics changed. Uh, physiological features in both the uh, uh, in both botany and biology changed. All animals up to that point were herbivores. They were grass eaters. And yet after that, they became some of them became meat eaters, carnivores. This means that there's a change in your dental structure. There's a change in your gastrointestinal system. There's all kinds of changes, all because Adam ate a piece of fruit. There were changes that occurred uh, to women so that now there would be increased pain and labor in childbearing. Not only that, but women would want to dominate men. See, they were originally designed to be helpers, to be assistants, to be an aider to the man. 
And what happens? Now they want to lord it over the man. They, they desire him in an inappropriate manner to rule over him. And men, instead of being the uh, loving leader in the home, now want to dominate the woman. So that is the origin of the, of the battle of the sexes. And then we have uh, a change in relationship to the land itself. Man was created to take care of the land and take care of the earth. And there was cooperation between the earth and man prior to sin. But now that there is sin in the earth, the ground is going to produce thorns and thistles. All of a sudden, uh, beautiful roses would now have thorns and many other things that uh, entered into uh, the uh, botanical kingdom because God had built into the structure of everything enough flexibility to handle the chaos that would come from sin. And so just that little bitty innocuous act of eating that piece of fruit just ripped apart everything in the universe. And God is demonstrating down through the ages, down through each single dispensation, he sets up different parameters in each dispensation, and he's going to sh- demonstrate to Satan and the fallen angels and to all creatures that no matter what the circumstances are, no matter what the parameters are, no matter what potentials, possibilities, or aids God gives the creature, that only when the creatures are completely dependent upon God is there stability and happiness and uh, eternal, uh, eternally positive Consequences. So this is what God is demonstrating. This is why your life and my life is a vital part of this, so that what we do provides evidence for God's case in his uh, trial or his argument against Satan. For example, this is what happens in, in Job. This gives us a tremendous picture of how this testing works in terms of giving evidence in this uh, uh, trial or courtroom drama that is laid out because Satan has challenged God's verdict and said, well, the creature can rule the, I mean, a creature can rule the creation. And God is showing that that's a false premise. So he takes a different case studies down through history. And we note in Job 1 that we learn the real dynamics of Job's suffering. Job doesn't know any of this, of course, until much, much later, after it's all over with. But this is what's happening in the heavenly realm. The Lord said to Satan, notice Satan didn't come to the Lord and say, hey, I want to take care, I want to do something to Job. It is the Lord who points Job out to Satan, because the Lord is going to demonstrate something through Job. This is what he does with, in testing with believers. So the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? Five times in the first two chapters we have a a reference to the fact that Job is blameless and upright. He fears God and shuns evil. There's no fault on Job's part. So nobody has the right to come along and say, Well, there's something hidden away back in Job's thought life or something. This is why he's going through this. Of course, that's what his friends tried to claim. But God gives the verdict here that there's no problem here. What happens to Job is not related to anything Job has done or not done. So Satan, in verse 9, answers the Lord and says, Well, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and protected him uh, around all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands. His possessions have increased in the land. In other words, Satan is saying, Look, you're so good to Job. No wonder he he follows you and adores you and worships you. You've given him everything. He's the richest guy on the planet. He's got wonderful kids. He's got a great family. He's got all these possessions. No wonder he does what you tell him to do. But just stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. So God then says, takes Satan up on that challenge and says, Okay, you know, I'll give you the freedom to test Job. We always have to remember that Satan can't have his way with anybody apart from God's permission. So the Lord says, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. These are just two examples in the Old Testament, Abraham and Job, of how God is testing believers in order to reveal what they have because that evidence that they present in their life as they live out and apply the Word of God 
It is evidence against Satan and the fallen angels. This is a dynamic that we see in in the book of James. And we've covered this a few times, so let me just give you a couple of points here. First of all, during the church age, now we're going to contrast testing for the church age believers and the testing that comes during the hour of testing and the tribulation, so keep that in mind. First point, during the church age, believers are tested in order to advance to maturity and demonstrate the truth of God's plan. That's critical to understand. Testing is to advance you into your spiritual growth, number one, and to demonstrate uh, God's grace and truth throughout the ages. So James 1, 2 through 4 teaches the concept about how we advance to maturity. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various tests. See, that's that same word we have in Revelation 3.10 that will relate to the hour of testing. It's parasmos. Because you know something. You know that the testing of your faith. See, it's a different Greek word here for the testing of your faith. This shifts to a word dikemion. These these two words are often found in the same context. And dikemion has to do with providing evidence of something, evaluation of something in order to prove what it's made of. It's very close in meeting to perosmos. So uh, we're able to count a joy when we fall into trials because we know a principle that the testing, the evaluation of our faith, that is the doctrine in our soul, produces endurance. There's that word again that we saw in James 1.16 earlier, perseverance in times of testing. But let endurance have its maturing work that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. So this brings together in James uh, 1, 2 through 4, shows us that connection between these Greek, con- these Greek words, perosmos, dikemion, and uh, hupomenes in terms of endurance. We'll see that connection as we go through this study. Then we connect this to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Again, a couple of verses that are familiar to us. Uh, in Romans 12, 1, we read Paul saying this is the beginning of his application se- section in the book of Romans. And he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And that word translated reasonable service is the word liturgos in the Greek, which is where we get our English word liturgy. It relates to worship so that our life becomes a a, a worshipful thing for God because we are taking his word and applying it. Worship isn't something that is restricted to what happens on Sunday morning in church or with a gathering of believers, but it is an expression of what is going on on a day-to-day basis in our in our life. And it focuses, liturgos focuses on the concept of uh, serving God as part of worship. Then we come to verse 2 where Paul says, And do not be conformed to this world. Don't be conformed to cosmic thinking here. And here he doesn't use the word cosmos. He uses a, a synonym, ionos, meaning the spirit of the age, what the uh, Germans call it zeitgeist, the thinking of the, the age in which you live. Uh, for us, that would be postmodern relativism but be transformed by the renewing or the renovation of your thinking, not your emotions, not your feelings, but your thinking, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, here we come into some interesting words here. For the word translated prove is that Greek word dokimazo. Here it's a verb form. In James 1, 4, we saw the noun form of the word, same word meaning to test, analyze, examine, or evaluate for the purpose of demonstrating or proving whether something is worthy or not. So uh, we we are proving something, we're demonstrating something in our lives, and in the church age the believer is demonstrating that which uh, has eternal value and is demonstrating the integrity and the character of God. Uh, which is what is showing here, that when we transform our thinking and we change from human viewpoint thinking to divine viewpoint thinking, what we do when we apply that doctrine is we are demonstrating with the evidence of our lives certain things about uh, God's will and God's plan. 
I want to come back and look at those last three words in just a minute, but before we do that, I want to pull this connection on Daki Madza over to a couple of other verses. 1 Corinthians 3.13 is a verse that is also familiar to us because this is the key passage on describing what takes place at the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ. And at that judgment, it talks about the fact that everyone's work will be uh, manifest. Verse 13 says each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. All of our works, divine good, human good, everything's piled up and it is tested by fire. The imagery comes out of the purification of metals that metals uh, always have certain impurities in them, and so it is by fire that those are burned off and you're left with just the pure uh, metal, so that what is being revealed is not the wood, hay, and straw. What is being revealed is the gold, silver, and precious stones, that which you have done positively in your life in the filling of the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, uh, empowered by God. So the fire will test or evaluate each one's work of what sort it is. And then this connects to another passage over in First Peter one sixteen and seventeen. And in first excuse me, first Peter one six and seven. Where Peter writes in this, that is, in your salvation, in terms of that's the first uh, verses three through five talking about what we have as regenerate believers, all that God has provided for us. He then says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. I wonder what the word for trial there is. It's our same word, perasmas. We are grieved. You know, even though you have joy in terms of you understand where things are going, you're able to apply James 1 2, count it all joy. When we go through the trials, at the same time, we have joy because we know the big picture. There are times when we are grieved in the midst of the process. It's the same concept that you have in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that uh, when we lose someone in death, in physical death, Paul says, we grieve. See, it's not wrong to grieve, but not like those who have no hope. In other words, there is a distinction in the way a believer handles tests, trials, crises, and an unbeliever. It doesn't mean that you just suck it up and you try to manufacture joy and that somehow it's wrong to hurt and to grieve or to go through that process you go through when you lose something, but it's not the same for the believer. It is not devastating. You don't have to uh, manufacture a false view of reality, live in some kind of psychotic uh, world, uh, dream world that's divorced from reality to handle crises because you know that we live in the devil's world. There are going to be problems and difficulties and things that are going going to uh, be tough to go through. But nevertheless, we can have joy and happiness and exaltation in the process because we know how the Lord is using it. So Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. See, there's joy and grief at the same time. But the joy is what controls and dominates. Verse 7, That the genuineness, there's our word again, the genuineness, or King uh, New American Standard translates it better, that the proof... Of your faith. That's the same concept we have in James chapter 1. The dokimion. See, that's the noun form of dokimazo. That testing for evaluation. That the proof of your faith, that is the doctrine in your soul, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested. And there's the verb form, dokimazo. It is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the rapture. That's when what immediately precedes the judgment seat of Christ. This is the motivation for the believer who understands grace, that uh, the salvation is totally by grace. God has paid for every sin. Sin is not the issue. And after salvation, the issue is understanding and appreciating the grace of God and letting that gratitude grow through our study of doctrine. And that becomes the motivation to press on because we know, number one, that our life is on display before a whole stadium, as it were, filled with angels. And as we take the Word of God and apply the Word of God, it becomes evidence in God's case demonstrating to Satan and the angels and to all creation that the creature can't make it. 
unless he's 100% dependent upon God, and that is faith. That's what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. So we go back to Romans 12.2 where we read, Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renovation of your mind that you may demonstrate what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And these words describe God's plan for history. The first word is agathos, meaning excellent. The second word, acceptable, is from the Greek you arestos, meaning well-pleasing or acceptable to God. And the third word is teleos, meaning uh, complete or sufficient. Complete or sufficient. And that tells us that God's will is everything that we need. We don't need anything else in order to have joy and happiness and stability in life. All of this connects back to the angelic conflict. And as I thought about this, I'm always reminded about a statement that Lewis Berry Chafer wrote in the first volume of his Systematic Theology, which I have here for you because it, it is a, a statement that we often should meditate on, think about. He writes, A serious question arises whether the presence of gross evil in the world is due to Satan's intention to have it so, or whether it indicates Satan's inability to execute all he has designed. The probability is great that Satan's ambition has led him to undertake more than any creature could ever administer. Such a great statement. The evil in the world is not what Satan wants to promote, all the violence and hatred and warfare and famine. It's rather a demonstration of his inability to be the god of this world, and to control everything than his ability. And what the angelic conflict is all about is demonstrating that inability. And so in the church age, there is testing. So the first point I gave you a few minutes ago was that during the church age, believers are tested in order to advance to maturity and demonstrate the truth of God's plan. Second point is that this proof, like that of Job in the Old Testament, is part of the evidence that's being provided against Satan in the angelic conflict. So every time we are applying the doctrine in our soul and we're demonstrating that God's will is good and acceptable and perfect, it's just another piece of evidence against the claim of the creature that they can live independently of God. Third point, Satan's plans to be like God, and in such a claim, Satan must demonstrate that he's able to run the world. So during the previous ages up to the tribulation, the testing is oriented to these believers in order to reveal that which is positive in evidence against Satan. But the focus of that evidence, that testing, shifts so believers go through, fourth point, church age believers go through their proof testing during the church age. That's then evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. So church age believers go through proof testing on a day-by-day basis. But point number five, this is then followed by a proof testing for unbelievers in the tribulation period called the hour of testing. Because what happens in the tribulation period, as God intensifies the judgment on unbelievers, it is going to reveal their hostility towards God and the fact that they are bent on acting independently of God no matter what the cost. Now, where do I get that? I get that from the next word that is a couple of words that are used in this particular verse. Verse... um, Verse 10 talks about the fact that this hour of trial will come upon the whole world. And that's the Greek word oika, oikomene. It's come from the root oikos, or oikeo, meaning to dwell is the verb. Oikos is the noun meaning house. And it's used some 19 times in the Old Testament translation of the uh, of the Hebrew Old Testament. Now that's really important because one of the things that we have to remember is that the 
the frame of reference for the writers of the New Testament wasn't Greco-Roman culture. Okay, let that sink in a minute. It's not classical Greek. The, the frame of reference for every writer of the Greek New Testament is the Old Testament. And so we have to understand how they understood things in light of Old Testament revelation, not so much in terms of what was going on in Greco-Roman secular culture, although that's important. It is not as determinative as Old Testament concepts. And we have this phrase here, the second phrase that defines oikomenos, and that is the word, or actually the phrase uh, in the Greek, oikot oikuntes. See in the on the screen, I've underlined the root meaning oika, which is that word for house or dwelling. And it is those who dwell upon the earth. That's what that means. So the, the term whole world is defined in the next phrase as those who dwell on the earth. Now, that's a very important phrase. Katoikea is an intensified form of the verb oikeo, it's kata, the preposition, plus oikeo, indicating those who reside or dwell or live somewhere. It becomes a technical term in the book of Revelation for unbelievers who are committed to persisting in unbelief. It's not just a gen- general description for people who are living on the earth. Now, how do we know that? Well, we know that because the word crops up in the Old Testament. Remember I said this word is this phraseology or, or the word oikomeno um, is used some 19 times in the Old Testament. Some of those are just generic uses. But in Isaiah chapter 13, it talks, which is a passage talking about the day of the Lord, which is a term for the uh, judgments that come during the tribulation period and concluding with the coming of Christ. In Isaiah 13:9, we read, Behold, the day of the Lord comes. Cruel with both wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate and he will destroy its sinners from it. This describes the judgments that come during the tribulation period. For the stars of heaven in their constellations will not give their light. And we'll see that when we get into the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments that the sun loses its light-giving capacity. The sun is darkened. The moon is darkened. The stars seem to fall from the skies. I mean, there is an astronomical uh, impact to God's judgment during the tribulation period. This comes right out of the Old Testament. Uh, Isaiah 13:11, God says, "I will punish the world, the oikomene, the world for its evil. Those who are the inhabitants of the world for its evil." Then the next time we see this is in Isaiah chapter 24. It shall come to pass, Isaiah says, in that day. What day is this? It's still talking about the day of the Lord. In that day that the Lord will punish on high the host of the exalted ones. Now, who's that? These are the demons, the fallen angels who followed Satan. See how the Old Testament is connecting the judgments that occur in the tribulation period with the final judgments that God is going to bring against Satan and his followers. It it connects you can't understand the tribulation and part of its purposes if you don't understand how it relates to the angelic conflict. So it says, God will punish on high the host of the exalted ones and on earth the kings of the earth. So it's not just focused on something happening in Israel. It's talking about all the nations, all of the world at that time, which is, of course, the Day of the Lord, the tribulation. Verse 22, they will be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit and will be shut up in the prison. Who's this? These are those fallen angels uh, in the pit and will be shut up in the prison. After many days, they will be punished. Then the moon will be disgraced and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his angels uh, gloriously. This is Isaiah uh, 24. 21 to 23 that locates this in the time of the of the tribulation now another thing to notice and if you don't have your bible turned to Isaiah 24 you should Isaiah chapter 24 we read in verse 4 
The earth mourns and fades away. The world languishes. And the word there for world is our word oikomene, which is the word that we find in, in Revelation 3.10. The world, the world, that is the inhabited world, languishes and fades away. The haughty people of the earth. It's a different word for people here, but we're talking about earth dwellers. That same concept of the kat oikeo, taste, artain gain that we have over there in Revelation, the dwellers of the earth. Here it's just the people of the earth. But then we go to verse 5 and we say, see, the earth is also defiled under its inhabitants. And the word there for inhabitants is the dwellers, the katoikeo. So there we have geis and katoikeo, tying these words, these concepts together. The earth is defiled. I like the way the New American Standard translates it, polluted. See, this isn't talking about about uh, air pollution or water pollution. What really pollutes the earth is our sin from God's perspective. See, that goes way beyond any of the problems that the greenies are willing to, uh, to focus on. See, the real pollution is a moral pollution that had to be dealt with through the death of Christ on the cross when he paid for our sins. So we read, the earth is also polluted under its inhabitants because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, the curse has devoured the earth, and those who dwell in it, there's that phrase again, these earth dwellers, those who dwell in it are desolate. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth, there's a phrase again, the inhabitants of the earth are burned and few men are left. See, the point is that the terminology that, that, is being used in Revelation has its source in Isaiah. And Isaiah is talking about this judgment upon those who are committed rebels against God who will be brought to judgment during the tribulation period. Okay, well, let's go back to uh, Revelation. Uh, on the way, Isaiah 26.9 uses this phrase again uh, that, this, that part of the purpose of the, this tribulation period, the day of judgment, is so that the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. The last phrase of Isaiah 26.9. Okay, I just want to run through a couple of these verses here to point this out. Revelation 2.13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you, uh, you hold fast my name, did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who is killed among you, where Satan dwells. That verse uses the word, but it's in the wrong context. Skip to 310 is the one we have. Now, after this, from Revelation 5 on, Revelation 610 we read, They cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? See, this is a picture of the tribulation saints in heaven praying and imploring God to finally finish the judgment on the earth dwellers, those who are rebelled against him. So, again, we have this phrase, uh, avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Revelation 8.13, Then I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Revelation 11.10, And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. That's the death of the two prophets. So the earth dwellers are those who are persistent in their rebellion and unbelief. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. That's the Antichrist, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life and the Lamb who has been slain. Uh, he who exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, this is talking about the second beast, the false prophet, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. Uh, Revelation 13, 14, he deceives those who dwell on the earth. Revelation 17, 2, talking about the end time system and involves those who dwell on the earth. Revelation 17:8, destruction to those who dwell on the earth. So what we see again and again and again is this phrase, dwell on the earth, is a technical term for those who persist in unbelief and rebellion against God throughout the tribulation. So then when we go back to Revelation 3, uh, 10, excuse me, Revelation 3, 10, and we read that the hour of testing 
comes upon those who dwell on the earth, we recognize that in the context of Revelation, this is talking about a, a period of intense suffering, pressure, testing that will come on the world in order to reveal the hostility of the unbelievers in the tribulation period, just as testing for the church age revealed the positive things that believers have. The believers, because we've been tested, are going to be removed from that hour of testing because in that hour of testing, the, the what is being shown is the inability of unbelievers and the inability of rebellious creatures to make life work apart from God. And it gets worse and worse and worse as they go through the tribulation period. And, they, and no matter how devastating the judgment is, and as we'll go through this, we just shake our heads thinking, how can they not turn to God? And every time God brings another judgment, these people stand up and they shake their fists in God's face and say, we're not going to submit. We're going to make it work on our own. And it shows us the commitment of the fallen person to independence against God. So many times we look at the world around us today and we say, how can these things be happening People are going crazy. It's because of the deception that is caused by sin and arrogance in human history. And, folks, we live in times where where I think we're going to see incredible uh, suffering, adversity, calamity, and maybe in, in the next few years in our lifetime, if the Lord tarries, I often have heard these doom and gloom reports ever since I was in high school. I remember having speakers come and talk to the youth group about how there were going to be these great famines that would sweep the world in the 70s and all this other stuff that was coming. And all my life I've had this resistance to gloom and doom. But you may not realize it, but there was a remarkable event that occurred Friday night in Mexico City when the uh, opposition party stood up and boycotted the State of the Union uh, address by President Vincente Fox in in uh, um, as they were protesting the results of this recent presidential election, and the 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 stage is set for incredible unrest and violence in Mexico as a result of this. And Chavez, who's a communist down in Venezuela, is paying 250 pesos a day to. Uh, these unemployed Mexicans down there to demonstrate and to live out in the square and to stir up all of this trouble. And we're, we're just inches away from having a communist government on our southern border. And if that happens, we think we've got an illegal immigrant problem right now. It's going to increase tenfold if that becomes becomes a communist nation. And in the midst of all that are going to come these floods of Arab terrorists. Sheriffs on the border have already reported how uh, Arabs are learning Spanish so that they can act like they're, they're Mexican to come across the border and they're smuggling weapons in and all this other stuff. And then we also have at the same time, because most of South America, if you don't know it, is communist, and uh, Hezbollah is sending their agents into South America and where they're uh, uh, getting involved in drugs in order to produce even more money. You've got the, the, the radical Muslim world is getting financed by drug money and by oil money. And it's an incredible amount of wealth that they're going to turn against the West and specifically against the United States. And we are in the ver- on the verge of just some horrendous things that can happen. And if it happens before the Lord comes back, the only thing that we're going to have to keep get us through it is going to be whatever doctrine there is in our soul. And this is a time when people need to wake up and pay attention to what... Uh, the Lord has said, because the only solution is always the biblical solution, and the only solution is starts at the cross and continues through learning and applying the Word of God. And I don't know what's going to happen, and I'm not saying things are going to uh, fall apart in the next week or week after that, but the stage is set for just some horrendous things right now, and we need to be very much aware of that. And this is why you have this... this uh, Warning that Jesus gives in the next verse, in verse 11, Behold, uh, behold actually isn't in the text, it's in, only in the uh, King James, it's not in the uh, either the majority text or uh, the critical text. It's just an abrupt statement. I'm coming quickly, I'll come in a rapid manner. Hold fast what you have, don't fall back, don't become complacent, so that no one 
can take your crown. Yes, you can reach a point of complacency in your spiritual life where whatever advances you've gained can be lost and whatever crowns or rewards you might have had may be lost. And we'll come back and look at that and its connection to verse 10 and uh, verse 12 next week with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this time to study your word. We pray that we would be challenged by these things, not to be complacent believers, but it would push us to be more dedicated, more devoted, making doctrine more of a priority in our own lives. We pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty for your sins so that right now you can have eternal life by simply trusting in him, believing that he died for your sins. This provides you with a perfect salvation that can never be lost. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we studied. In Christ's name, amen.